We're coming to the end of 2016, and I wanted to make an end-of-year pitch for support for the SRB podcast. Since February 2015, I've conducted over 59 interviews on topics as wide-ranging as Putinism, post-war Kiev, Belarusian nationalism, Stalinist terror, Russian punk rock, Russian porn, Soviet gypsies, and many, many more. The topics have been an eclectic mix to give as complex a picture of Eurasian history, society, and culture as I can. I've interviewed some incredibly knowledgeable people who've generously given their time to offer us all interesting and thoughtful discussions. I think it's safe to say there isn't a podcast on the region like it. Though the podcast is free to listeners, it's not free to make. The SRB podcast is a one-person operation. Each episode from start to finish takes about 15 hours to produce. Reading on average a book a week is like being back in grad school. Editing out all the ums, kind ofs, you knows, and writes take up to five to six hours alone. Then there are hosting and equipment costs. So if you like what you hear and find the discussions valuable, especially at a time where thoughtful discourse about the region is so scarce, please consider becoming a monthly patron or making a one-time donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. A few months ago, the University of Pittsburgh Press sent me a new study on corruption in Kyrgyzstan from their Central Asia in Context series. As I say in the interview, I don't know much about Kyrgyzstan, and a book on the sale of state offices, rent-seeking, and corruption have a lot of parallels in Russia. I wasn't disappointed. Johann Ingvall's concept of the state as an investment market sheds light on why elites purchase state positions not only in Kyrgyzstan, but throughout the region. If you're interested in corruption and rent-seeking, my discussion with Johann will be of great interest to you. Johan Engvall is a research fellow at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and a non-resident research fellow at the Central Asia Caucasus Institute and the Silk Road Studies Program. He is the author of The State as Investment Market, Kyrgyzstan in Comparative Perspective, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Here's Johan Engvall. You open your book, The State as Investment Market, Kyrgyzstan in Comparative Perspective, with a rather broad question, I think. And that question is, how should we understand the state? Why do you ask this question about Kyrgyzstan? Um, when I started working on, on this project, and that's now more than a decade ago, as a political scientist, and the field was very much influenced by, by the so-called transitology paradigm, with its focus on democratization and uh, regime transitions. But when I started, to me, it became clear that this rather simplistic, one-dimensional focus on, on authoritarianism versus democracy wasn't really enough. And then also at this time, in the, after the turn of the millennium, more and more research also started to, to pay attention to, to the issue of, of state building in, in the former Soviet republics. So you can say that the idea that uh, guided the research from the outset was 
that I needed to go to the more basic level, to the fundamental issue of, of state building, not least in the case of Kyrgyzstan, which uh, hadn't existed as an independent state before 1991. So, so that was one aspect. But then, of course, related to this, during my field studies, I also came to realize rather quickly that this, even if there had been quite a lot of studies on the state and going back to that, much of it just described these states as, as weak, which I thought was a little bit unsatisfying. Of course, the, the state in Kyrgyzstan is certainly weak if you compare to to states like Germany or, or others. Yeah, But that doesn't tell us so much. So what, what I really wanted to do then was to try to capture this the logic of this particular state on its own more. And uh, that, that was something I thought was a bit missing. So, so I th- would say that this book is, is an attempt to to understand the underlying logic and the functioning of, of the state here. Your book is also, I think, a conversation with the concept of neo-patrimonialism, which is also another way more and more scholars are trying to understand post-communist states, uh, particularly in Eurasia. You use this concept of net cl- patron-client networks, but at the same time, you're, you're critical of it. What's your, your view of the neo-patrimonial analysis? Yes. So when I started to look in the literature also, I, I found that this, the standard treatments of the state that you found in the literature, I mean, there, were, there are interesting aspects of all of them when you think about the modern Western state and you had the Soviet state with its legacy. But really, as you say, the concept that fitted the best was this neo-patrimonial. And that has been probably the most usual one to, to apply to the Eurasian state over time. And also here you can have some parallels to this type of shadow state that they talked about about in Africa. But I really found that even if there are similarities here, and this neo-patrimonial concept is rather broad and it includes a lot of things, I, I thought I found something more that the Kyrgyz case involved something more specific than, than just captured by this broad neo-patrimonial umbrella uh, of you know understanding these informal relations and all that and at the core of this was this the role of informal payments and and some kind of almost like the state is used as a kind of investment market so i i in that sense i i try to specify this type of you can say that that is could fall in under this broad umbrella of neo-patrimonialism but why i wasn't really satisfied with just that was that I didn't think it really captured exactly what I was looking at here or, or were grappling with. You know, let, let's talk about that because you, your analytical framework, and you've already mentioned it, uh, is to understand the Kyrgyz state as an investment market. It's a pretty interesting concept. What do you mean by the state as an investment market? That, that is the argument that I advance here, that, it, that the state itself really can be understood as a, as a kind of investment market. First point of departure relates to the access to the state or how, how people are recruited to the state. And the way that that is, the fact that that was often, when I did my interviews, I, I heard this about the need to actually provide these financial payments to, to get access to, to state jobs. And also that this payment referred to something more fundamental than simply a bribe. That it really constituted a form of investment. So rather than just buying an office to secure a, a single service or favor, which is typically the case with a simple bribe, it was really more that officials they invest their own or borrowed money in order to obtain this access to 
a stream of incomes that can be associated with, with an, a particular office. So the motive, motive here was that um, the position that they get will enable them also to make a return on, on their investments. So in that sense, in a basic logic, in that sense, it's not very different from that you invest in on the stock market or in properties. Yeah? But I saw this as a very clear pyramid yeah, where these um, payments go from top to down. Now, let's talk about the context in which this develops, because as you said, Kyrgyzstan is, has ne- not, doesn't have a history of being an independent state before 1991. Uh, it's been part of the Russian Empire and other empires in Central Asia, and then it becomes a Soviet republic during the Soviet years. How and why did political offices become basically for sale or as an offices of investment in Kyrgyzstan? And how did this process of buying an office work? This is something, when i getting into this, that's of course a question that I started thinking about and tried to, to get out. When did this start, this process or this aspect start? It seems like it emerged gradually. It wasn't really in the beginning of the independence, in the early mid-90s, it was not so widespread. I would say that in the beginning, it was a lot of focus on the economic aspect, you know, the privatization that Kyrgyzstan did. So it was really this economic aspect of the state, that these assets that were the main target in the beginning there. But then later in the 1990s, it started to, to become more and more uh, common. And it was clear that it became potentially very lucrative to hold these political offices, the, the, since they gave access to a lot of rents. But one process here that I think, if you recall that Kyrgyzstan introduced much more uh, market liberalization, they had pri- privatization, and also, so you saw a burgeoning, say, entrepreneurial class emerging there in the 1990s. But then in the late 1990s, this new business group were defeated, you can say, in a way that the, the state, the, the, the regime got after this and put much more pressure on it. So the state also strengthened during this time after being extremely weak there in the, in the 1990s. So really came back here and... For many of these bigger businessmen, so they were somewhat private, in a way, access to the state be- became a way of, of also protecting themselves from, from the state. So, so that was one aspect that I think really that the, the value of the state here increased here. And there was a lot of, they had a lot of influence over the, the regular economic markets, which were becoming increasingly weak. But when it comes to this process that you talk about, how this works it can work differently but there was uh, one expert group um, that works in the in Kyrgyzstan with the, with the mandate of investigating corrupt schemes in in various sectors and the particular group in charge of examining police corruption they identified you can say following basic dynamic when it came to recruiting traffic police officers and that was that the candidate in general would pay roughly between three and five thousand dollars to a mediator who kept a certain you can call it what they say consultation fee maybe about ten percent and then handed over the money to to high level officials in the interior ministry where the one at the top of course takes the biggest cut and the rest of the money tend to be divided among other affected the heads of divisions and, and others. And then also you have similar arrangements repeated when it comes to promotions. 
But then also if you take these high-level political investments, one interesting trend that you can see now is following the, the change in the form of, of government in 2010 towards a stronger parliamentary system following this constitutional reform in, in 2010. The powers of the parliament have strengthened and the parliamentary mandates have become increasingly valuable as a result of that. And, and you can see that many candidates, and this is surprisingly openly acknowledged and discussed in media and among candidates themselves, they buy slots on the part, lists of the major political parties. And you can see that this process has been increasingly standardized and, and the parties, they have adopted to this demand by secretly attaching price tags on, on these slots there. So it, it fun, making them, you can say, really subject to, a, to an informal market logic. And then, you know, the, the, the parliament here is really one strong, very much filled with, with say, economic interests, strong businessmen slash politicians. I want to go back to this issue of the process. So in the 1990s, you said that there's like in in many post-Soviet states, there's a period of privatization and the development, the capture of those assets by uh, a burgeoning entrepreneurial elite. And then then you have another standard story, of course, is, and you see this, of course, best exemplified in Russia, where the state comes back in and strengthens and begins to squeeze that entrepreneurial class. And then the class takes a turn toward the state. So what is the constitution of the state in Kyrgyzstan at this period where the state is now becoming an object of investment for elites, but what is propelling the state forward to say, tame this class? I agree with you totally. There is a good good point that we rush see in most of these cases. I look to, to other cases as well, but in Kyrgyzstan you also see this the, the the return of the state. You can say if you think about in the nineties, there was a lot of focus, as you said, about these oligarchs or private groups that some kind of state capture that they they use their their money and influence to to capture the state uh, in a way. I wouldn't say that is what it's about anymore because when the state came back. I think that's a lesson that entrepreneurs and, and oligarchs learned from, from the 1990s there where there was this very unstable situation and, and protection could be taken away anytime. Yeah, so now it's, it, the, the primary goal is to, to have direct access to the state, to, to be the one to decide this in the first place. Uh, which legislation, who will have the rights to which properties. and uh, But I would say that the, the difficult thing is that for the state to, to do something about this is, of course, that it's a very, it's from a, a top-down a pyramid here. It's a, some kind of collective action logic, you can say, that even those who are not, wants to stay outside of this process, or they, they don't really, it's very difficult for them to make an impact on the system. So, I often say that you, another parallel that you can make here is, is to a franchise system where you are occupying certain lucrative positions, which often known as this type of they entails that you can buy the right really to use the state's mandate, resources, and also this brand name to collect various under-the-table payments. So in a, in a similar way as an entrepreneur is allowed to sell hamburgers with the McDonald's logotype, the state official practically becomes a 
become a pr- pr- profit-seeking entrepreneur in, in the state's service in this sense. Now, another aspect you talk about in terms of, you know, you have the layer of the market of, of buying and selling state official positions, and then there's the, you've mentioned that there's this pyramid, but there's also family relations as well, in particular, the role of the Akayev and the, the Bikayev families. What role do these prominent presidential families play within the market of official positions? That's, that's a great question. I, I spent a great many years actually thinking about how to understand this relationship between money and personal connections or th- these family aspects. And, and it's clear, as you said, that under both Akayev and, and then Bakiev, uh, personal contacts and, and family mattered immensely. And also the more they consolidated their, their powers, the, the stronger the influence of, of their nuclear families became. So, so this aspect with family and kinship definitely exists there. But if we return to this relationship between money and purse connections, one thing that I'm really examining in this study here is the, to see how these, these two factors relate to one another. What this is that, that really matters? So I, I could sometimes hear, for instance, from respondents that it was seen as similar, you know, that the more you paid the more loyal you, you were perceived to be also, and, 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 and these aspects that personal. But I, I would, in general, say that, sure, the, the, it, it is not at all like an auction market where it's, what only matters is who pays the most. It, it is this, if you think about this, it's an, still an illegal practice. It's, it's prohibited in law. So it really requires, and with all corrupt activities, of course, it, it requires some kind of reciprocity, you can say. You, you, you really need to, to trust the one you're doing businesses with. In that sense, that it's a continuing market. These relationships are meant to be continuing. It's not just that they will do it one time, because in this system, so when you get access to your position and then you, you collect your informal fees, but you just don't collect them for yourself. You share them continuously. So, so in that sense, it's very important to have this aspect of, of, of trust in, in the system. So, so this relationship is important. So it's, but then, as you say, with this, which I think is one tension here, is this more, when money tends to dominate, it's still, it's much more impersonal than Basically, anyone who has access to money has a fair chance to get into the state. While the problem is that if you just belong to one family, then it becomes larger family, becomes very difficult. And that is where, when I see the greatest risk for instability in this, when this it becomes very much concentrated, the, the control over, over resources and, and lucrative posts to one particular group. Because that excludes many, many other powerful interests. So I, I, I have two, two questions then with this. The first question I want to ask is actually, because you, you mentioned that talking about illegal activity here, this is, this is corruption, and corruption by law. But at the same time, it's also a system that seems everybody seems to accept. So when you approach respondents with questions about essentially illegal activities, how did they relate to you? What can you tell us about the people you talked to? Yeah, this was not something that when you had in the, in the beginning, the, the formally, many formal interviews, when you set up formal meetings, you could hear a lot of talk 
I mean, that's one thing in Kyrgyzstan. They are surprisingly straightforward and open <laughs> with how they, how they talk. And, and of course, you got the, a lot of information about with the problems with, with corruption. So, so, but that was more on a, on a general level with, with all the problems. The, the more you, you started to ask, use this information that you got on, on other people, and you got more and more concrete aspects about this. But still, one thing when you had just these formal meetings that, that you initiated yourself and you met in office, then it's, of course, very difficult to get this information that you're, you're interested in. So really important for me during the, the whole research process was that I had several very knowledgeable insiders, you can call, who I hadn't met before or who I met in Kyrgyzstan and became good friends with. And they had, in, in certain different sectors of the state, like... Um, uh, some people in in, experience in in the tax administration, others in the police. So with their help, could be introduced to more and more people with some degree of trust in this sense. So there's really no no substitute either for personal connections in 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 the research research process here. And also, I often do, then when I had the meetings, I often also had additional meetings. I invited to meetings in uh, informal settings, more in cafes and and other places where people were, were talking much more openly. So, so it was really, in a way, this snowball process and also to capture this. But, but I can say that I, I, in my research, I, I, I relied on three different categories of, of interviewees. And, and they were government officials, politicians from, from the political elite, where I had many meetings with parliamentarians, top-level officials, ministers and others. But then also from the civil service with a particular focus on law enforcement and, and taxation. And then I had this other, you can say, non-state, which were different, different experts or journalists, uh, civil society. Of course, it was in a way a bit of a putting a puzzle together and, and trying to... Because many people, of course, report about things that they've heard from others. But of course, you have to try to approach your, your sources in a systematic way where, of course, the most importance needs to be to really get from those people who have observed this or know about these practices rather than just heard about rumors. Yeah. As you said, the, the, the buying of these offices are an investment. Therefore, there needs to be a return on investment. So talk about the various ways in which officials get a return on their investment. How did they extract rents and other forms of, I assume, bribes and, and things like this? In this sense, of course, there are many different ways, more or less sophisticated methods. And of course, there are differences uh, depending on, on an official's position in, in the state hierarchy here. But I would say that in general, this, this informal system largely functions as a, as a market where different rights, you can say, really are bought and sold. So in this market, you have court verdicts that can be bought of different Alliances are formed between prosecutors, tax inspectors, and some financial police officers in order to extract money from, for instance, private companies. And you have this, you know, as in all post-Soviet countries, this army of uh, grassroots bureaucrats who approve documents in exchange for smaller bribes. And then in the education system, you have with the grades and seats also in the first place can be awarded in, in exchange for an informal fee. So, so in this basic moral label, there are many different. But then, of course, if you 
move to the top of the level, of course, there are many uh, really lucrative ways. Everything from conventional bribery to also this that you sell these government jobs, you get money from that, of course. And then you, if you're in, it depends, of course, in which sectors you are. You have the appropriation of budgeted and extra budgeted funds, kickbacks from privatization or licensing and also very important, of course, public procurement contracts, unregulated subsidies. So, but I would say that, and of course, also access to different kind of uh, foreign rents can come from military partnerships or um, foreign aid. But irrespective of the exact practices, there are, I see it in a way as a variations on this theme of, of transforming political and administrative resources here into private gain. So, so there are many different ways of returning these investments, and hopefully then with the, with the profit on top. Now, you mentioned in passing the issue of political instability, and you know, as we know, Kyrgyzstan has had a pretty rocky political system in the last decade or so. What role does this type of corruption play in maintaining stability on the one hand, but also cause? instability in the Kyrgyz political system on the other. Do you already reference the idea of when one family monopolizes over or one group monopolizes over the extraction of rents? But how does this play out in, in Kyrgyz uh, political turmoil? In part, I would say that the, my argument really is that corruption is about more than greed. That, that this, it, it's essentially a way of ma- maintaining order in, in these types of systems. So in order to secure support from the elite and the huge bureaucracy that still exists, the leaders, in a way, they need to grant officials the right here to, to use their positions for seeking rents. And the key, I think, here is to allow a rather inclusive access to these rents, at least among groups that matters, in a way. And then the system tends to be more, more stable. And uh, as I see it here, the danger of instability from the case of Kyrgyzstan uh, increases when, when the access here to rents are, are cut off for too many powerful groups and concentrated in, in the hands of a smaller clique, as you said, around the presidents, uh, like Bakiev, but also Akhayev before that, the, uh, the examples from Kyrgyzstan. But also you can look at the Yanukovych, rule in Ukraine seems to be similar, developed almost into full-scale kleptocracies, you can say, benefiting only one family and their closest associates. So uh, the problem with this is, of course, that it radicalizes the opposition. Money is no longer difficult to, to get access through that. Then might this more radical or even violence in an extreme case be, be remaining option. But it also, not just that it alienates many elite actors, but it also, of course, risks creating social resentment among the population. That, which, for instance, if many local public goods providers that had access to this before are, are, are cut off from these streams, of course, and they have a very strong support in, in certain constituencies and, and like that, it's, it's also affects here heavily in, in among ordinary citizens who can also, of course, be mobilized or initiate protests themselves against this system. 
So the key, it seems, is to maintain some sort of balance. Some sort of balance. And uh, that is, I think, the key. Steel, but not too much. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But but I think in in this sense that it's also difficult to, there seems to be a tendency over time to to want to concentrate more and more in, in your own hands. And then I think it's when it starts to get a bit, dangerous or, or more risky when this process sets in. I know very little about Kyrgyzstan, admittedly, but I know a lot more about Russia. And what the, the model you're describing here has a lot of resonance with the Russian case and, and also the broader context of other post-Soviet states. And, and your book is putting Kyrgyzstan into a comparative perspective. So how does the Kyrgyz example fit within the broader context of post-Soviet states in Eurasia? My main focus is, is on Kyrgyzstan, but, but I think I also do a little, look a little bit broader in the book. So I would say that even a more superficial glance at many other post-Soviet states suggests that the possibility of a very similar dynamics here. Ukraine, one apparent example where the parliament has long been a club of dollar millionaires and you, you have very similar processes. And if I don't remember wrongly, in Russia, when Medvedev, just after he became president, he used to talk about that only five positions or something like that in the country was not up for sale. And also, as shown by various reports and and surveys, pecuniary corruption of of the type that I discussed in Kyrgyzstan is widespread throughout this region. With the exception of Georgia, I would say, which is the only country in the region that has made a decisive break with this type of corruption uh, because Georgia was extremely bad in the 90s and the early 2000s here. And also, of course, we, I exclude the, the Baltic states, which are separate and have progressed very strongly in this sense. But of course, there will always also be some cultural differences in the way corrupt practices are organized. But, but this major feature, if you look beyond these cultural aspects of, of seeking rent from state posts, that I believe are quite similar across these countries. And in this sense, I, I believe that the, the Soviet legacy really matters here. The fact that the state, at the time of independence, the state was the dominant actor in all, all spheres of life following uh, the Soviet system. So even if this type of Soviet state is, is gone now, the state really remains the central structure of, of authority here in the post-Soviet region. And this, I think, is a bit different than, than corruption is widely spread in most parts of the world. But in some other highly corrupt regions, there can also be other structures that may be just as important sources of corruption as the state. It could be external powers or neighboring countries, rebel groups, business uh, businesses and all that. So so this, the dominance of the state, even if it's filled with a different content compared to in Soviet times, I think that is is something here. But then when it comes to differences among countries, you could maybe hypothesize that differences in resources structure may play a role here. Also, the quality of private markets. You could assume, of course, that the better the working, the private sector, the less in- incentives there will be for officials to, to invest in public offices to make money rather than uh, engage in more productive activity. Now, you, you mentioned Georgia as one of the examples of a state, post-Soviet state, that's been able to get out of this conundrum. And the fact that it is 
endemic throughout the post-Soviet world. How should it be combated? How, how does a country like Georgia reverse itself from this? Great question. Yeah, this is obviously the, the real challenge. In the contemporary world also, there are very few success stories, if you look at it globally, even when it comes to the problem with corruption. And also, paradoxically, most of those who have succeeded, if maybe in the last 30 years, maybe a dozen countries, something like that maximum, who really successfully fought corruption, they didn't do it by using these international anti-corruption programs or their advices so much. If you look at countries like the Baltic states or yeah, also others, Chile maybe, they they didn't receive really any money earmarked for, for anti-corruption. but Many of those countries who have received the most money earmarked for fighting corruption, like Egypt or Ukraine, they, they have had very little success, really. So, so, And also this whole anti-corruption industry that has emerged in the past, so at least past 15 years, promoted by different international organizations and also donor governments. And also among in, the, in this industry, of course, the for, former Soviet countries are some of the major recipients. So, but I would say a problem here is also that the, the basic approach is rather simple. Yeah, that the idea that these countries have have they have had the wrong policies and had the wrong type of laws. Yeah. So if only new policies are adopted based on so-called best international practice, then things will improve. So so that the idea is that uh, highly corrupt countries should should learn from non-corrupt countries. But problems with this is that. Of course, these non-corrupt countries are very few, and they consist mainly of a small group of developed industrial countries. And second, also that these countries who have are developed, they didn't really come to the point they are today by following any of the the type of steps that they now promote. So, and I think also another problem comes from this theoretical. If you look at it with all these anti-corruption. Focus strategies or programs that are, are applied across the region really rests on this theoretical understanding of, of corruption as a principal agent problem. Uh, in this sense, then, the problem is that one principal at the top, he is unable of monitoring the corrupt activities among his agents there at the, then at the, the lower level. So then anti-corruption work then focuses a lot on working with, for example, a certain minister and other top officials in the ministry on, on different types of reforms. But then the same minister is the one who sits at the top, yeah? May also have invested quite a lot of money to get that position. So it's hardly in his or her interest then to fight corruption, even, even if they would have the resources to do so. so. Because that would eventually essentially mean that you, how to say, sew off the, the branch that you're sitting on. So... I would also add that the just combating the sheer embeddedness in the political culture of corruption is one major obstacle, but also to it. And, and, and this goes back to my, my understanding of Russia, even if they wanted to say, clean things up, they would have to use mechanisms of the state, which contribute to corrupt practices in the first place, right? You would have to have a very strong state to crack down on and clean out the administrative uh, offices, thereby creating a problem of, of one using force and, and then another of 
having to, of course, rejuvenate those those the, the administrative structure. I would say that still that my impression is that to get out of this system, if you are, reforms need to be more radical than, than normally assumed. Because if you if this and it cannot it's not just a matter of some technical adjustments and then you know to the legislation or other things. Really, the whole idea of what it means to be a politician or public servant must change here, as well as how services are exchanged between officials and, and the citizens. And this type of very, if you think about that, it requires really dramatic measures. And that's probably only possible under certain conditions. There must be a strong political will, of course, but also a popular mandate to, for doing these things that can be rather painful. But in general, though, I, I think this very direct fight against corruption is very difficult. I think also can, of course, be risky when it comes to stability because, you know, <laughs> corruption, if, if, if you attack corrupt actors directly they will probably fight back but i would say based on my study then i would still single out two key factors i think that are very important that i see the first thing is this that on this pyramid that i talked about that the bureaucracy must be depoliticized it's really you know one now it is a pyramid from politicians at the top to down to street level officials and then of course this union or fusion you can even call it between politics and business must be broken up here this is key of course one thing here could be to to strengthen the the, the private sector but how how to do that is also a question but if you look at the you mentioned about the georgian case which really rested on on two key pillars i would say first of all a very centralized presidential system a small group they just decided how to do it and did it very rapidly. And they also had a, you can say, a frontal attack on these corrupt state structures. They had a strong support when they did that in the beginning. It was a very strong popular mandate for, for fighting corruption. So even if they did very tough measures, it still was possible. And that is not possible at, at any point of time, I, I believe. But then also, I think the, the Georgian case is also interesting because it shows still that they really tried to recreate the, the state from scratch in a way. They, and, and also that it wasn't just to attack. Of course, that was part of it, that they kicked out a lot of uh, officials and, and, and that. But they also they changed the, the, fun, the institutions, the, the way the state was organized and all that. But just otherwise, just bringing new people under the same rules, that would not change uh, that much, I believe. But then, of course, the Georgian case is a problem also because they have been extremely successful when it comes to fighting more like petty and everyday corruption. It's more difficult to say what happened on the top level. But anyways, it shows that it is possible, which is one thing, because Georgia was, if you remember, in Soviet times, so in the 90s then, was always known for as, as the most corrupt place in the, in the whole uh, Eurasia, basically. So then that was also part of how people believed that these things couldn't change. But, but the problem in Georgia also, of course, that they fought it with rather quite uh, aggressive means. 
And also they, they, in the beginning, maybe it was necessary to take this type of shortcuts to, to really bring some results yeah, and really aggressively. But the problem seems to be that at least uh, on the Saakashvili's rule, it was this problem that this type of approach was extended to more and more spheres and it become, became very much more and more authoritarian and then also lost its, its popularity. So, so the, the, the thing is just applying, but, but I think there are some lessons to learn from, from the Georgian case, not least also the, the way they use technological advances and the e-government, which I think holds some promises for the future to cut back, cutting back these useless encounters between state officials and citizens. So that's something that can facilitate. But I think the, an interesting way to look forward would be if there's some kind of more indirect approach is possible that still address this, but maybe not this directly. And this, the, the, the thing with, with Georgia is that it doesn't really offer any lessons to whether democracy is a way of helping in this sense. And finally, let's turn back to your initial question about the nature of the state. In what ways do these informal practices and patron-client networks and the corruption and the, the state as an investment market? Because here, I, I'm torn between on the one hand, and maybe these aren't that different. The state on the one hand is privatized, but at the same time, there's a very feudal structure because it's not private in the sense that the position is owned indefinitely. One can be removed by somebody from above. So how does your your study make us look at the state differently? In the most basic way, I think that it allows us to, when you focus on these informal practices, it allows us to, to look behind this formal facade which, which of the state institution, which look, basically looks pretty similar in most countries. And that has also been the idea more that democracy or, or dictatorship, there it can, but you I mean the state is basically similar, uh, basic structure in a way, or even if it can be. But I think the second thing is come to understand these informal practices as something more than just uh, distortions to, of formal state institutions and, and agencies. In this sense, it's not just uh, dysfunctional. Uh, uh, and I would say that you often hear when it, about corruption, that it, this metaphor of corruption as a cancer. Yeah? But that really implies that, a can- that there is a cancer here in one place of the, the state and it can be you know, removed with some surgical precision uh, methods. But if you think about it, uh, as I would argue, then that these practices are, should a similar metaphor, I would say that it's more like the lifeblood of the entire system here. Uh, and that, of course, has implications for how to address uh, this problem. But I also think that it, another aspect when it comes more to this Central Asian studies or even post-Soviet, there has been a quite a lot of focus on this traditional identities, you can say, uh, in these informal practices, which, as I, we talked about earlier, certainly are there, you know, these aspects. So in Central Asia, it's a lot of talk about different regional identities, clans, families, and all that. But, and of course, that, that really matters. But one implication, I would say, from my study is that it, it is not that this country, at least Kyrgyzstan, it's, in a way, it's more modernized in this sense, it's more about 
money rather than some kind of parochial, very ancient uh, ties uh, in the, in that sense. So, in, in that sense, I, I I believe I believe this uh, this way of really looking at what kind of informal practices are here and how do they relate to to one another uh, allows us to to understand how, uh, how the state really is is cost constituted in the first place and the way it is constituted also have implications then for how it functions and performs and 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 all that and of course there are many negative implications of this in in the sense that citizens they have to uh, live with the very low levels of public goods and a highly corrupt environment and all that but it it is still a system i see it that that uh, that works and um, and it has its own logic which may not be effective in, in, from a development perspective but it it's it's about more than just seeing corruption here as just simply dysfunctional or just about this even if of course in some some there are many plenty of cases where with this extreme greediness and all that but it's about more than that that was Johan Ingvall, a research fellow at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and a non-resident research fellow at the Central Asia Caucasus Institute and Silk Road Studies Program. He's the author of The State as Investment Market, Kyrgyzstan and Comparative Perspective, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but is not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to everyone who've contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and Soundcloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.